Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, August 26th, Sunday, August 27th, 2023. Uh, we do have a few anniversaries. On August 26th, 1071, this is the anniversary of the Battle of Manzikert. Uh, lovers of Byzantine history will know the Battle of Manzikert is uh, one of the real milestones uh, and not in a good way in Byzantine history. This is a battle uh, that took place in eastern Anatolia, near um, uh, Armenia, kind of near the Caucasus, uh, in which the Seljuk Turks uh, defeated a Byzantine army, routed it, decimated it, whatever you want to say. It was a very decisive victory. Uh, and that battle and the subsequent more or less disintegration uh, of Byzantine political cohesion for, for some period of time, uh, opened Anatolia, which had been this fortress for the Byzantines ever since uh, the uh, Arab armies moved uh, out into the Levant in the 7th century. The Byzantines had uh, retreated into Anatolia, and that and the Balkans had been their sort of uh, kind of home base, essentially. And Anatolia served as a, almost a, a fortress with the mountain ranges around it. It's uh, this battle opened almost on its own, and as I say, the unrest that followed opened the Anatolian plateau uh, to the Turks, and they swarmed in, really, uh, and began taking territory very quickly uh, from the Byzantines, and it was, um, it was obviously a long time still, uh, almost 400 years before the empire totally came to an end, but uh, in some ways you could argue it was all downhill from here. Uh, on August 26, 1922, the Turkish army began what is known as its Great Offensive, which was the, its final push to oust an occupying Greek army from Anatolia. The offensive was successful and brought the 1919 to 1922 Greco-Turkish War, which was itself a theater of the larger Turkish War of Independence, to a victorious, uh, at least from Turkey's perspective, conclusion. Uh, on August 27, 1896... Shortly after nine in the morning local time, British forces invaded the Zanzibar Sultanate over a succession dispute. Uh, it took around 40 minutes, uh, but the Anglo-Zanzibar War came to an end after about 40 minutes, and Britain's man was on the throne. This conflict, which is the shortest war in recorded history, marks the point at which Britain's protectorate over Zanzibar really took hold, and the Sultanate, which was founded when Zanzibar and Oman split into separate kingdoms in 1856, ceased to be an independent political entity in any meaningful sense. On to the news. In the Middle East and Syria, fighters from an al-Qaeda-linked Syrian militant group Ansar al-Tawhid killed at least 11 soldiers and wounded 20 others in an attack on an army position in northwestern Syria on Saturday, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. Tit-for-tat violence in that region seems to have intensified a bit over the past couple of weeks, though there's no indication as to why. In Yemen, uh, Yemen's Houthi rebels reportedly attacked Southern Transitional Council-aligned fighters on Sunday, somewhere along the border between Southern Yemen's Al-Baida and Lahij provinces, uh, killing at least 10 people and wounding another 11. At least four rebels were also wounded, according to military sources who spoke to AFP. As far as I know, there's been no comment from rebel leadership about this attack, which could threaten to undermine Yemen's ceasefire. Uh, STC-affiliated uh, militias have engaged in relatively frequent clashes with al-Qaeda fighters in southern Yemen uh, in recent weeks, uh, but there's no obvious explanation for uh, a new Houthi attack. It's unclear uh, what could have caused that. 
in Saudi Arabia, according to the New York Times, U.S. officials knew last fall that Saudi border guards had been massacring Ethiopian migrants attempting to enter the kingdom uh, from Yemen, but decided not to say anything about it publicly, aside from a vague reference to alleged abuses against migrants made during a United Nations Security Council session. Uh, you may recall we covered the uh, these massacres last week in the newsletter, I think uh, Monday, uh, Monday, Tuesday. Uh, this is, of course, the kind of deep moral commitment that I think we can all agree is a hallmark of U.S. foreign policy. According to the NYT's anonymous sources, U.S. diplomats did raise the issue privately with Saudi officials. How strenuously is anybody's guess, but I can't imagine that they made a particularly big deal out of it. Per the Times, quote, it remains unclear whether those discussions have affected Saudi actions, end quote. I could could guess, I could take a guess, uh, but let's leave it at that. Uh, on to Asia and Myanmar, uh, where the ruling junta has apparently expelled East Timor's charge d'affaires, or at least the East Timorese government thinks so, because it issued a statement condemning the expulsion on Saturday. East Timorese officials have frequently criticized the junta and have shown support to the national unity government established by Myanmar rebels. Uh, that's probably the reason then for the expulsion. In China, China's post-COVID economic recovery hit another bump in the road last month as industrial profits were 6.7% lower than they were in July 2022. That comes after an 8.3% year-on-year drop the previous month. These short-term hitches may not have any significant long-term implications for the Chinese economy, but they might contribute to a global economic downturn in the short term. Uh, in North Korea, speaking of recovering from COVID, uh, the North Korean government announced on Sunday that it will allow citizens living abroad to return home for the first time since the country went into pandemic lockdown over three years ago. Anyone taking advantage of the relaxed policy, this group is expected mostly to include students and expat workers, will need to spend a week in quarantine upon arrival. And another sign that Pyongyang is finally emerging from said lockdown, North Korea's air choreo carrier flew its first international flight since the start of the pandemic on Tuesday, a round-trip voyage to Beijing. In Africa and Mali, artillery fire killed an 11-year-old child in the Malian city of Timbuktu on Saturday. The Malian army attributed the attack to, quote, armed terrorist groups, end quote, which means Islamist militants, and in this case, fighters from Mali's al-Qaeda affiliate, uh, Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam al-Muslimin, Last weekend, reports emerged that JNIM, as it's called, had blockaded Timbuktu. Uh, the militant group had previously declared war in the Timbuktu region, so this has been going on for a while now. Meanwhile, Islamic State has, according to the UN, doubled the Malian territory under its control in under a year. Uh, I guess the combo of a military coup and support from the Wagner Group didn't prove to be a panacea against jihadist violence. After all, uh, this rapid IS expansion appears to be strengthening uh, JNIM's position, interestingly, as it portrays itself as the only entity in Mali capable of countering its rival jihadist group. 
in Niger, that country's ruling junta has reportedly put the put its security forces on maximum alert over the threat of an incursion by the economic community of West African states. Junta leaders do not appear to believe an attack is imminent, uh, and ECOWAS continues to insist it's giving diplomacy a chance. But in its alert order, uh, the junta mentioned the need to prepare for an invasion in order to, quote, avoid a general surprise, end quote. Uh, the junta organized large supportive protests in Niamey over the weekend to, I guess, show ECOWAS that the Nigerian people are behind it. It is clear that a large number of people in the capital do back their new military government, though it's impossible to know whether that support extends to other parts of Niger. Uh, in Somalia, the SSC militia, which asserts loyalty to the Somali government, has reportedly seized a major military base and several checkpoints in the Sul region of the breakaway Somaliland Republic. Back in February, that mil- militia engaged in fairly heavy fighting with Somaliland forces in and around Sul's capital, La Sanod. Uh, SSC officials acknowledged casualties on both sides as a result of this latest fighting, but without going into specifics. In Zimbabwe, election officials on Saturday declared President Emerson Mnangagwa the winner of Wednesday's election. According to their tally, Mnangagwa took 52.6% of the vote, while his main challenger, Nelson Chamisa, took around 44%. Chamisa and his allies are already rejecting the results, which were released more quickly than expected after an election in which several urban polling stations suffered major delays due to an alleged lack of ballots. Vote monitors have noted a number of irregularities, including the presence of members of a group called Forever Associates of Zimbabwe, who seemed intent on collecting personal information about voters. That's a little bit creepy. Uh, A not insubstantial number of monitors wound up being arrested by Zimbabwean authorities, which drew international criticism from the U.S. government, among other sources. It's unclear whether the opposition is planning to challenge the result and, if it does, how it intends to go about that. On to Europe. In Russia, the Russian military says it shot down two Ukrainian drones over Belgorod and Kursk Oblast on Sunday. A drone reportedly damaged an apartment building in the city of Kursk, which may have been the same drone that was shot down, although that's not entirely clear. Uh, A drone strike on Saturday killed one man in Belgorod. Uh, Russian authorities, meanwhile, say that they've confirmed the death of former Wagner Group boss Yevgeny Prigozhin in Wednesday's tragic and totally accidental, we swear, plane crash in Russia's Tver Oblast. Apparently, molecular genetic examinations were able to determine that all 10 people listed on the plane's passenger list, including Prigozhin and Wagner number 2, Dmitry Utkin, were in fact on the plane. Uh, In Ukraine, Russian shelling reportedly killed at least two civilians in a suburb outside the eastern Ukrainian city of Kupiansk on Saturday. There are indications that the Russian military has targeted Kupiansk for a counter-counter-offensive, if you will, uh, and they they may make a move to recapture the city with the Ukrainian military's attention and resources focused further south. Elsewhere, a cargo vessel left Odessa on Saturday, becoming the second ship to make use of the shipping corridor the Ukrainian military opened after Russia quashed the Black Sea Grain Initiative. That ship, the Primus, or Primus, is heading for the Bulgarian port city of Varna. Uh, In Germany, while investigations into the bombing of the Nord Stream gas pipelines last September are still ongoing, the German outlet Der Spiegel reports that suspicions are increasingly centered 
on Ukraine. And I do have a uh, an excerpt here, but uh, you know what? I'm just going to say it's not a, not a great excerpt. You should just read the piece uh, if you're interested in this investigation. It's clear that uh, everything is pointing at Ukraine at this point. And I think I've said this before, but part of the evidence of that is that nobody's talking about how any there's any evidence pointing at Russia, which I think you would see the United States uh, and other Western governments making a huge deal about if it actually uh, existed. Um, but I don't think that said, I, I don't think there's any reason to expect a an official conclusion to the story. If it, it was the Ukrainians that did it, uh, who did it, I, I don't think there will be any point at which uh, there's a definitive statement to that effect, or the Ukrainian government is made to uh, pay restitution. It would be surprising to me if that happens, let's just say. Uh, and on to the Americas. In Mexico, according to Kurt Hackbarth at Jacobin, Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's anti-poverty program is working. And I will read the first couple of paragraphs of this piece. On August 10th, Mexico's National Council for the Evaluation of Social Development Policy, uh, CONEVAL, an independent federal agency released its much-awaited poverty measurements for 2022. Its findings outstripped the most optimistic forecasts. The multidimensional poverty rate in Mexico, a measurement of income plus a series of social rights such as food, housing, and education, fell 5.6% from 2018 to 2022 translating to some 5.1 million people. When compared to the height of the pandemic, the numbers are even more dramatic, with 8.9 million being lifted out of poverty over the last two years. Other statistics from the report, together with findings from the National Institute of Statistics and Geography, were equally promising. The income gap between the top and lowest 10% of incomes is down from, 20, from 21 times in 2016 to 15 times in 2022, while the Gini coefficient has dropped from 0.448 to 0.402 over the same period. Uh, it's, uh, it goes on from here, but really, if you're you know following... Uh, AMLO's work uh, in Mexico, the numbers seem to bear out that he's doing what he said he was going to do, alleviate poverty and reduce inequality. Uh, I don't know what else to say uh, apart from that. Uh, and finally, in the United States, Samuel Moyne is writing at the, or was writing at the New York Times uh, this weekend, speculating about the, whether or not the remnants of Cold War liberalism can be salvaged, and I will read you again the first couple of paragraphs of his piece. Liberalism is under siege. It is not just a problem for America's Democratic Party, which once again may face either losing an election to Donald Trump or claiming victory with a bare majority. Around the world, the entire outlook of political liberalism, with its commitments to limited government, personal freedom, and the rule of law, is widely seen to be in trouble. It wasn't long ago that liberals were proclaiming the end of history after their Cold War victory. But for years, liberalism had f has felt perpetually on the brink, challenged by the rise of an authoritarian China, the success of far-right populists, and a sense of blockage and stagnation. Why do liberals find themselves in this position so routinely? Because they haven't left the Cold War behind. It was in that era when liberals reinvented their ideology, which traces its roots to the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, and reinvented it for the worse. Cold War liberalism was preoccupied by the continuity of liberal government and the management of threats that might disrupt it, the same preoccupations liberals have today. To save themselves, they need to undo the Cold War mistakes that led them to their current impasse and rediscover the emancipatory potential in their creed. Uh, Samuel's an interesting 
interesting guy. You may not agree with everything he writes. I don't necessarily agree with everything he writes, but he's uh, uh, he definitely is an interesting uh, thinker and writer and has interesting things to say. Uh, so I would recommend that you check out uh, that piece as well. Uh, with that, uh, that's all for us tonight. Uh, thanks, all, as always, for reading in or listening to the newsletter. And thanks to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially if you are a paid subscriber, making this newsletter possible. Uh, it couldn't be done without you. Uh, if you haven't made that jump to paid subscriber, please consider doing so. Uh, you, really, you really are keeping the newsletter alive and um, helping to, to maintain it and, and hopefully... Uh, to grow it, to get it bigger, and uh, and bring on more writers. I would love to do that. I'm sorry, I'm just kind of uh, kind of rambling now, but um, you know, it, it would be great to get as many people on board as possible to really help uh, boost the newsletter. So, with that, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.